If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I discuss practical, simple and scientifically backed ways to help you take back control of your mental health, help others and ultimately live your happiest life. In this episode, I am interviewing Dr. Georgia Ede. Dr. Georgia Ede is a practicing nutritional psychiatrist who focuses on lifestyle modifications as treatments for major mental health issues. In this episode, Dr. Ede shares how she used to practice traditional psychiatry using medications and psychotherapy and how she did a complete about turn to treating mental health through nutrition, through seeing the ineffectiveness of traditional approaches, as well as her own personal wellness journey, which led her to an unconventional and unorthodox way of eating that completely healed her and has been the cure for many of her patients. We discuss the major issues in mental health and nutrition science and literature, what we should be eating to optimize brain function and mental health, why fake meats are dangerous, the biggest obstacles to creating healthy eating and lifestyle habits, and so much more. Just before we start, I want to thank everyone again who has left a review, subscribed to this podcast, and shared it on social media and with friends and family. Not only does your feedback help me improve each episode, but I also love seeing what you guys are learning and what key takeaways you have. It's so encouraging and exciting. And... If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving a review. The cost of this podcast is you sharing and subscribing. One more note before we begin. This interview was recorded remotely, so the audio quality may be a little scratchy in some areas. Now, back to today's episode. Another note before we begin. Many of you may be familiar with my 21-day brain detox program. Well, I am so excited to tell you about the new and improved version of this program, which is now available in my app, Switch. In this app, I guide you through the five steps that you do over 21 days. In this program, you will identify the root cause of whatever is causing that anxiety or depression or toxic thinking in your life and how to eliminate the root cause and how to build a healthy new neural network and thinking habit. This app recently went through clinical trials and the results have been astounding. And the science behind this program is backed by over 30 years of research. I'm also so excited because I'll be adding more and more specialized programs to this app and more amazing features like support groups and coaching. To download the app and start your brain detoxing journey, visit theswitch.app. You can also find the app in the iTunes App Store and Google Play. 
Just look for Switch On Your Brain. The link and details will also be in the show notes. I am so excited that you joined me in the studio today, Dr. Georgia Eid. It's an honor and a privilege just to talk to you and just to get your incredible knowledge out to my audience. I know they're going to benefit so much. Likewise, thank you so much, Dr. Lee, for inviting me on. And hello to all of your listeners. Wonderful. Well, first question is, can you share a little bit more about you and why you do what you do now? And how did you get to where you are now? Sure. So I'm a Harvard-trained psychiatrist practicing in Western Massachusetts, and I've been practicing psychiatry for about 20 years. And the first 10 years of that, I was practicing conventional psychiatry, prescribing medications and offering psychotherapy, combining those two. And then for the past 10 years, I've focused more and more on nutritional psychiatry. And that's what I've been doing now exclusively for a couple of years now. So this is really a very exciting field and a really cutting edge field. There are just a few of us doing this right now. And I really hope that the more psychiatrists hear about this and the more everyday people hear about this, the more they'll look into this field because it really is, I think, the future of psychiatry. You just said so much in that one sentence that's made me so excited. It's a whole new world that you're opening. Just talk a little bit more about why you've just said what you said, because it's powerful. Yes. Well, you know, as a conventionally trained psychiatrist, as much as I love my work and and passionate about it and love working with people, it could also be very frustrating because the treatments that we have available are often rather disappointing. Even when they do provide benefit, medications, for example, when medications provide benefit, which they often truly can, they're often partial benefits and a lot of side effects as a price to pay. So the wonderful thing about nutritional psychiatry is that what you're doing in nutritional psychiatry is you're looking for root causes of mental illness. And many of those root causes happen to be related to diet and therefore people can actually control and have a huge impact on their brain chemistry through their food choices. That's incredibly powerful because one of the big things with mental health, as you and I both know, is that feeling of being out of control and all the uncertainty that goes with that. So to be able to give people control over what they eat and to know that it's going to help improve the brain health and mental health is so powerful. Exactly. It's not just powerful, but it's empowering. It really puts people back in control of their own care to a large extent And there's so much people can do for themselves, even without the help of a specialist, depending on the circumstances, to improve not just their brain health, but their overall health, simply by understanding a few basics about what the brain needs and which foods are best at delivering those things to the brain. Wow. So how do you approach this in your practice? So right now, the way my practice is structured is it's a virtual practice where people, wherever they are, can consult with me about their situation. And I help them by working on finding a dietary strategy that could help them improve their mental health, perhaps reduce or even in some cases eliminate the need for psychiatric medication. So I'm a general psychiatrist, an adult psychiatrist. So I I work with people who have are struggling with lots of different types of things, bipolar disorder, ADHD, panic disorder, psychotic disorders, depression, pretty much everything. 
And the really wonderful thing about nutritional psychiatry is that it doesn't matter what the so-called diagnosis is because these approaches improve brain health. And when you improve brain health, any condition can benefit. I love that. They're all comorbid anyway. So you can't really just separate things out and put them in little boxes, which is what people have, I think, tried to do so much with mental health. I love that sort of more holistic approach that you're taking, that if you address the health of the brain, it's going to help tremendously in the health of the body and then help tremendously in the health of the mind. You know, that feedback loop, that's what I found with my work. I don't know if you found that as well in what you're doing. Absolutely. I love what you just said too, because I find myself saying that to people all the time is that these diagnoses are, many of them, they're inexact and a lot of them are really descriptive. Like, oh, depression comes with this list of symptoms and anxiety comes with this list of symptoms. And then we're trained to put people in these boxes and most people do not fit neatly in those boxes. So it's really about understanding how you can improve overall brain health. And no matter what you're struggling with, it could benefit. It's incredible. You know, I just the other day was speaking to someone who's really battling with a lot of a lot of stuff, suicidal ideation, a lot of things. And this particular person said the only thing they can control is their food. And I thought, wow, that's just such a you know great start point to even take this conversation a little deeper. Your focus is on the connection between food and every aspect of physical and mental health. Can you talk about that connection? And what are people missing or not getting right? So there are a lot of myths out there and a lot of unhelpful information about nutrition and health, particularly about brain health. And the reason for that is the field of nutrition science is very flawed. And so we don't really have the right information about what a healthy diet is unless we look a little deeper than the headlines. There are these very clear paths between what you eat and the health of your brain. And one of those is, of course, just the nutrients. Are you eating the right foods that will contain the nutrients your brain needs? And another is, are you eating the wrong foods that might be damaging your brain? So you need to make sure you're choosing more of the right ones and opting out of more of the wrong ones. So that's just about the nutrient and damage piece. But then there's also the metabolism of the brain. And this is how the brain gets energy. And really, that's the fundamental basis of a lot of the work that I and others are doing in this field is understanding how to fuel the brain properly. And the myth about that is that you need to feed your body a lot of carbohydrate because the brain needs sugar. And really, it's rather almost the opposite. So this is really important because the metabolism of the brain determines the overall health of the brain for the large part. So it's nutrient deficiencies, it's avoiding the damaging foods, and understanding how food affects the metabolism of the brain hormonal balance, and neurotransmitter balance. So you can actually control a lot of this simply by changing how you eat. That's invaluable information. So can you go into a little bit more detail about what's wrong with the current literature and understanding of nutrition and food in a little bit more detail and maybe helping us to understand the more direct links of how can you improve neurotransmitters in your brain and just overall brain health and metabolism, the insulin resistance, all these things. So the reason why so much of the information that people are going to hear today is different than what they've heard about a healthy diet is because the lion's share of nutrition studies that you see in headlines and that show up in our dietary guidelines around the world, they're based on a type of study called an epidemiological study. And that's just a fancy word for a questionnaire-based study. So you ask thousands of people or even tens of thousands of people what they ate 
over the past year when you have them fill out a questionnaire. I mean, I can't remember what I ate last week. <laughs> <laughs> so how many cups of blueberries and how many serving oatmeal and things like this. So these questionnaires, they're really designed to get a sense of what people are eating. And then the researchers look at these questionnaires and they look and see, okay, how many people with heart disease were eating this many scoops of bran cereal? How many people with cancer were eating this many scoops of broccoli and things like that? So they try to guess about these connections between which foods might cause which diseases. And that's fine if your questionnaire is very, very well designed, but then it still really only generates a guess. And then that guess has to be tested in a clinical trial in actual human beings to see if their guess was correct. And when these studies are later put to the test, they fail more than 80% of the time. That's unreal. So you'd be better off flipping a coin. So those studies are, in my opinion, and I've written a lot about this, the studies are really not just useless, they actually can lead you in the wrong direction. So these are the studies that most of the prominent nutrition authorities around the world are basing their recommendations on. That means that the majority of food advice that we're getting in the sort of general environment of food is based on an 80% inaccuracy factor in some. Have I summed that up correctly? That is beautifully summarized. So we should not be listening to that advice at all. So what should we be listening to? So take it even deeper. Absolutely. So what we really need to return to is some other fields of science that we can trust more deeply and just simply to common sense and human history. It really wouldn't make sense, for example, to think about a food that we've been eating since time immemorial as the major culprit in our modern disease crisis patterns. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to demonize something, you know, saturated fat or red meat or things like that that we've been eating forever. And that's not to say that you have to eat red meat. You certainly do not have to. But but that just doesn't make sense on the face of it. What really people need to remember is that the ingredients, the signature ingredients in our modern diet that make it different and so much less healthy than all of the other diets that have ever come before it. The modern diet ingredients are refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour and fruit juice and cereal products and vegetable oils like soybean oil. Those are the signature ingredient in modern processed foods. And those are the ones that are damaging the brain and the body from the inside out. Oh, I can't agree with you more. So aptly named, as you both know, the modern American diet, the MAD diet. I was just talking to someone earlier on in an interview that when I started practicing in the 80s, I practiced for nearly 30 years, actually. And that's when people were still eating a whole food diet at that stage. But the processed food diet had started. I honestly saw that the change in that time period of people going from eating real food to a full on diet that was processed food and a change in the kinds of problems we were seeing and the change in the kinds of, you know, then increase in, in the medications because that paralleled at the same time, as you know, the introduction of Prozac and Ritalin. And I watched this and it was fascinating to watch. And now how we're going, we challenging that and, and seeing all the results of 40, 50 years of this problem. And you're addressing this now in your practice through diet. Yes. And I'm not doing it alone. Of course, it's people who are interested in doing this. I mean, I can't do this for them. They have to do it for themselves. And so I love that people are taking their health into their own hands and really turning their lives around without side effects and co-pays and stigma. 
That's fantastic. I, I love that. Without the side effects, the co-pays and the stigma. That's such a good example, such a good way of explaining it because there is so much stigma attached around having a mental health label. And you mentioned that earlier on is that you were trained to take a few symptoms and give someone a diagnosis and a label and some kind of chemical treatment or a bit of talking, which is going to help definitely. But we didn't give people control. We put them in a box. And I think as soon as you do that to someone, you, you, know, you take away so much of their freedom. And you take away a certain part of their identity and a certain part of their agency. So you say, well, you have this diagnosis and this is the treatment for this diagnosis. Then you haven't really framed it in a way that gives people any hope. No, all causes. You haven't dealt with the underlying cause of the whole issue either. In your bio, you mentioned that you first became interested in nutrition after discovering a new way of eating that completely reversed a number of perplexing health problems that you had developed in your 40s, including chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and migraines, IBS. This experience led you to a quest to understand why the unorthodox diet that restored your own health is so different from the diet that we taught is healthy. I've heard you tell the story and I absolutely love it. Can you talk about that story? Sure. You know, as I said, I practiced traditional psychiatry for 10 years, and I really did not once think about the connection between food and mental health. We weren't taught about it in medical school or residency. And I really, as a woman who had always struggled with my weight, I just thought about food as a way to control my weight. I never thought about it as determining my overall brain chemistry. And so I came up against these problems in my early 40s. I'm 55 now. I went to all of my caring, smart, Harvard-affiliated doctors, and none of them could find anything wrong, and none of them asked me what I was eating. And so I you know, just embarked on my own sort of journey of experimentation, trial and error, kept a food and symptom journal, and over about six months, I had arrived at a diet that was really upside down from what we're told is healthy, and that was the diet that restored my health and not only my physical health, which is what I was mainly working on, but my mental health, which had you know never been that bad to begin with, was markedly better. My mood, my concentration, my energy, my stamina, my sleep were all much better. And I thought to myself, I'm a psychiatrist. Why does this diet, which is mostly animal foods and a few plants, none of the whole grains and none of the dairy products and none of the high fiber foods. And why is this high animal, high cholesterol, high fat diet? Why is this so good for my brain? I need to understand this because I have so many people I'm not able to help with medication. What if there's a way that these kinds of ideas could help them too? So I started studying very, very intensely more than 10 years ago, the actual science about nutrition and the brain and the body. Wow, that's incredible. So now this diet, this unorthodox diet, can you talk about that? And how do you advise your patients? Do you do different diets for each of them? Do you see it as a unique? What is your approach? So talk about your diet and then talk about how you help your patients in, in terms of using food. Sure. The way that I'm eating currently is I'm eating uh, what's called a carnivore diet, which is an all-meat seafood poultry diet. There's no dairy, there's no eggs, there are no plants. I very rarely eat anything from the plant world. But this is primarily, I want your listeners to be clear about, this is primarily because I have a lot of food sensitivities. And so this works very well for me, but it is certainly not where most people need to go with their diet. And when I'm working with people, I start with their food preferences their health history, what they've already tried before. So we start there. And then really, 
if, for example, someone were coming to me and they'd never tried any kind of a special diet and they just wanted to know what I would recommend as a good starting point, I think the best starting point for every human being, no matter what age, no matter what condition, is the sort of so-called paleo diet. It's a whole foods diet. It's meat, seafood, poultry, eggs, nuts, vegetables, fruits. It's whole foods you'd find in nature and none of the processed foods and none of the more recent agricultural staples like grains and beans and dairy products. And so that's where I think, I think it's a great starting point. And then you can adjust from there. So for example, if you have insulin resistance, which we'll talk about more later, if you have damaged carbohydrate metabolism or prediabetes, which is now most of us now have this problem, unfortunately, if you have trouble with your carbohydrate metabolism, you may need to eat a low carbohydrate version of that same diet. But so I usually start with a paleo type diet, especially for kids and teenagers or anybody with a healthy carbohydrate metabolism, and then work from there. So paleo diets, low carbohydrate diets, ketogenic diets, and sometimes carnivore diets. And then I even help people optimize plant-based diets because those are very popular diets. And I understand why some people would feel uncomfortable, you know, eating animal foods. And so we just need to make sure we supplement very, very carefully and avoid some of the toxic modern foods that even people who eat, a, of course, a plant-based diet need to avoid. So there are lots of different strategies depending on what the person's goals and preferences are. In the new year, a lot of people are focused on healthy diets and exercise, but there is an important missing element for many, natural light. Red light has been shown to be especially effective in helping improve sleep quality, skin rejuvenation, rapid wound healing, improving cognitive function, and reducing joint pain and inflammation. My go-to red light therapy device is Juve because their devices were designed based on extensive research. They come in various different shapes and prices, so you can get one that best fits your budget and your needs. And it really works. I've been using my Juve device for a few months now, and I absolutely love it. I like to use it right after my sauna to help relax my mind and body. And I have definitely noticed an improvement in my sleep quality since using this device. Right now, Juve has a special promotion just for my listeners. Get a unique gift with your purchase with the code DRLEAF at checkout. Go to juve.com forward slash DRLEAF and use the code DRLEAF. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com slash DRLEAF. The link will also be in the show notes. So what I'm hearing you say is a very unique approach to each person and that there isn't one diet. There is just basically eating real food in a very mindful way, which is, a, I wrote a book called Think and Eat Yourself Smart. And then I said, there's one rule for eating and it's eat real food mindfully. And I'm listening to you and I'm hearing this, you say the same thing, that it's really to think about what it is that you are going through and to then adjust and adapt to each person in their own unique way and see what actually works for them as long as you're eating real food and not this processed food. That is exactly right. And you know, there are people out there who eat a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, but they still eat a lot of processed food as part of that plan. And you know, that may be addressing one particular part of the problem, the metabolism problem, but it may not be addressing some of the nutrient issues and some of the toxicity issues that can come with modern foods. So in terms of relating that to mental health, do your patients approach you with a mental health issue and then you track it back to diet or do they come to you for diet? How does it work? 
you're a psychiatrist, so they're coming to you for mental health. How do you shift them onto diet as a solution? Yes, well, for many years, I did nutrition consultation work in my more conventional practice. So I worked in college and university settings and in specialty clinics and in community mental health centers. And I would try to incorporate nutrition principles into the conversation whenever there was an opportunity. I had a mixed practice for many years. And then over the past couple of years, I focused exclusively on nutritional psychiatry consultations. So people who are consulting with me from around the world, they're coming to me because they have a mental health issue primarily and because they want to approach it through diet. So the people that I'm seeing right now are all people who are already motivated and interested in this approach. Could you maybe, without obviously sharing names, maybe share some stories of some patients who've come to you with a mental health issue and that you've treated using your approach with food, just so that my listeners can understand it a little bit more clearly? Yeah, sure. I've got several that I could share that would maybe inspiring to different types of people. So for example, a woman in her early 40s, an architect with who had lifelong ADHD that really interfered with her ability to work and function both at work and at home. She eventually uh, was prescribed Adderall, and that helped her a lot with her productivity, but the medicine was causing these unstable peaks and crashes in her attention and energy levels throughout the day, and then it also caused her some bothersome side effects. So she really didn't like taking it. First, she tried, you know, sort of a paleo-style diet, and that helped with a lot of other health problems she was having, but it didn't address the ADHD. So we eventually moved to a ketogenic diet, and she found that if she kept track of her blood ketones, which you can measure at yourself at home, if they were above a certain number, if her ketones were high enough, she actually didn't need to take Adderall on those days and found that she would function even better on the diet than she did on medication. And what this suggests is that the ketogenic diet is improving her brain's ability to function. Another case, which I think is pretty striking, is a 31-year-old graduate student. This was when I was working at Harvard with students. She was having frequent panic attacks every day. Some of the times they'd wake her up in the middle of the night. She was feeling irritable. She was constantly craving food, a lot of emotional eating patterns. And after she would eat, a couple hours after she would eat, she'd always get sleepy. So she had a lot of anxiety and she really was health conscious and she didn't want to take an anxiety medication. So we said, you know, maybe this is carbohydrate sensitivity. You've got so much instability in your mood and your eating patterns. So we started a whole foods, low carbohydrate diet instead. And very quickly, she, you know, was later able to report, you know, that her symptoms were 90% gone with dietary changes alone. That's incredible. No Xanax, no Klonopin. No, no side effects and potential dementia. Exactly. I have a couple of other cases too, if you'd like. Yes, please. So I had a 40-year-old overweight musician with what's called bipolar depression. So mood instability, but a lot of deep depressions, years of suicidal thinking, despite the fact that he was taking mood stabilizers and antidepressants. And he found that whenever he would go on to a ketogenic diet, after about four weeks, his life would feel worth living again. And even though none of the problems in his life had gone away... They didn't bother him as much. And he had the emotional wherewithal to work on them and to try to make things better. And he, and he also you know, lost 20 pounds, which was one of his goals. I work with people who have cognitive issues too. So I have a patient, 80-year-old overweight 
retired attorney with early Alzheimer's disease and lifelong sugar addiction and lots of anxiety. And he started a ketogenic diet hoping for better mental clarity. And after about a year of following this diet most of the time, he has not only reached his ideal weight, but his mind is much sharper and his mood is much better when he is in ketosis, when he's got some ketones in his blood, which just means that he's fueling his brain with fat instead of sugar. And whenever he falls off the wagon and eats sugar, he feels immediately for several days depressed, anxious, and confused. And so there's a very clear connection between how he's fueling his brain and how his brain is operating. This is fascinating. This is absolutely incredible. Real-life practical examples without all the medication side effects. It's just amazing. On that track, why do you think nutrition and the food factor have been left out of so much psychology and psychiatry training and just in general medical training? Because I train physicians and I find that when it comes to food and mental health, they just have so little knowledge. There's just so few people like you out there. Well, likewise, and I know you've trained many thousands of people, I think that medical education has become so hijacked by pharmaceuticals. And I don't think there's a conspiracy theory among, you know, drug manufacturers. I mean, a lot of medications can be very helpful. And I think we're also really enchanted by the notion of simply taking a pill. And doctors, I think medical students, they really want to learn all the really interesting cutting edge things and the biochemistry behind these medications and or these special procedures and you know, everything is kind of you know very alluring. I mean, nutrition may not sound very exciting to medical students who want to have specialized knowledge. So nutrition may not be of interest to those types of students, but when we're really talking more about prevention and how the healthy body works rather than all the fascinating ways in which a diseased body falls apart. Exactly. <laughs> I, I love that. What your experience has been. No, that's what you just said there now is it should be more preventative than reactive and just dealing with a broken body. Yeah, I find the same thing. It's just, I think a lot of it's got to do with the reductionistic approach to the biomedical model being absolutely the most important way of approaching people's mental health and not seeing that mind and the connection between the mind brain and the whole almost like it's got to be physical. You've got to see the actual, with a cardiovascular disease or something, for example, it's so easy to have very clear-cut diagnostic procedures and interventions that mental health has been put into that category and reduced from this huge big mind thing into trying to make it more physical. So I think that's one of the elements that a biomedical approach is seen as more important. And when it comes to mind and nutrition, they just haven't been seen as important. Meanwhile, they're driving, they're proactive, they are the underlying forces behind how we function as humans. I mean, that's my opinion. But more and more doctors now are getting very interested in learning more about managing their own mental health, managing mental health of their patients, nutrition. It's definitely a desire, but it's not enough yet because the mental health care system, as you know, and medical system, as you know, is just not dealing sufficiently with nutrition and mental health correctly. It's not at all. And what a wonderful world it would be, wouldn't it, if all the doctors who you know, spent all of these years on specialized, expensive training could use their skills to treat conditions that can't be managed with diet, severe injuries and genetic conditions and serious infections and things like that, rather than these completely preventable chronic illnesses that plague almost everybody now. Exactly. I mean, it's 95% of illnesses are lifestyle related and only 5% genetic. And if you look at lifestyle, lifestyle is predominantly food exercise, sleep, and your mind, the mind 
behind the chronic and acute stresses. You know, these the seven lifestyle factors. So we should be addressing those as a massive part of living as a human. And obviously, because your mind and your food are going through your body, your body's going to respond. So we've got to have the medical side too. You've got to have that balance. But I think it's it's gone too much in one side. That's my opinion. We haven't focused sufficiently on the undergirding factors of nutrition and mental health. So that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing. It's just a fantastic way of approaching it. I couldn't agree with you more, everything you just said. I mean, it really has been lopsided in the wrong direction for a long time. So what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles that you see when people are working on their diets and mental health? Food addiction. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. And you should probably talk about insulin when you talk about that as well. Probably, I don't know if you want to address both of those. Sure. And so, of course, we're very, very attached to food. We're culturally attached, you know, historically attached. You know, whatever you grow up eating when you're a child is often the, the same kind of food you'll eat later on in life, and it can have a lot of special meaning for you. So people get attached to foods, but also there are some foods which are very, very addictive. These are primarily the processed foods, the highly palatable, very, very intensely flavored, artificially flavored, and sweet and starchy foods where, with the refined carbohydrates that give you a sugar rush. These foods, these processed foods and processed carbohydrates, they are really addictive for people. And the addiction can begin very, very young. And these are the kinds of foods we give children all day long. We don't feed most for the most part. We don't feed children real whole foods. We feed them processed, sweetened, artificially colored, intensely flavored foods that are not real. Terrible. It's terrible. And then it's very, very difficult later in life to try to change that pattern. So food addiction is a very, very big part of it. One of the reasons why so many of us end up with chronic mental and physical illnesses is because of this problem called insulin resistance, this pre-diabetes or broken carbohydrate metabolism. So, you know, we're just eating the wrong way our entire lives and that damages our metabolism over time. It makes it hard for us to process particularly carbohydrates, even carbohydrates from healthy whole foods like fruits and vegetables. So the reason why the brain doesn't like that diet is because If you're damaging your carbohydrate metabolism over time, what's happening is every time you take in something sweet or starchy that's spiking your blood sugar and insulin levels, you're getting this roller coaster effect on the inside. It's like an invisible hormonal roller coaster. So your blood sugar spikes and crashes, your insulin level, that's the hormone that processes the sugar, spikes and crashes. And then insulin controls all these other hormones in your body, including your sex hormones and your stress hormones and your blood pressure hormones. All of your hormones are now on a roller coaster for the rest of the day. So you may not realize it, but that's what's driving for many people on the inside, their mood swings or their drop in energy in the afternoon or their poor concentration or their insomnia or their panic attacks or their feeling like they need to eat every two hours in order to feel stable. That internal roller coaster, we all have to step off of that roller coaster. It's relatively quick thing to do, but it's difficult because you have to leave some of these foods that you really love aside. That's so well said. And isn't it also that cumulative effect that, you know, you talk about the child eating the junk food and you talk about by the time they're 15 or 20 or as they're growing older, they've had years and years of these terrible foods. So along the way, they've been diagnosed because they can't concentrate. So now they've had medications added to a poor diet and they're not getting enough fresh air and exercise. So they go into adulthood with these cumulative problems. And, you know, we've seen this effect now that was 
predicted 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, we see you treating these people and, and, and we say that there's an epidemic of mental ill health. Meanwhile, I always say it's not an epidemic of mental ill health. It's an epidemic of mismanagement of mind, which relates to the food choices and everything. When I was hearing you speak before, I heard you speak a little bit about that sort of thing. I don't know if you want to pick up on what I've just said and take it a little deeper. Sure. Oh, I love that mismanagement of the mind. That's right. I think that what's happening over time, and this is really rather chilling, is that this damage to brain and body metabolism can begin very, very young and get worse and worse over time, as you just said. And so if you're eating the wrong foods too often, what's happening is you're damaging your body's ability to process carbohydrate. And that creates something called insulin resistance, which means body can't listen properly to insulin signals anymore. And insulin is critically important to most cells in the body functioning properly. So you've got this wrapper around your brain called the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier picks and chooses which things come into the brain. And it's trying to protect the brain from damage by being very selective. And it only lets the right things in and tries to keep the wrong things out. Well, one of the things it's trying to let in is insulin. Your brain can't turn glucose or sugar into energy without insulin. So as you become more and more insulin resistant because of eating the wrong foods, particularly the refined carbohydrates, as you become more and more insulin resistant, it becomes harder and harder for insulin to cross into the brain. And then your brain has a harder and harder time turning food into energy. So strangely enough, the more sugar you eat, the harder it is for your brain to use the sugar. That's going to influence BDNF, neuroplasticity, cognitive functioning. Can you speak to a little bit of that? Because that manifests mental health problems as well. Absolutely. Thank you for asking that question. So everything about how the brain functions depends on a constant supply of high quality energy 24-7. Now, some of that has to come from glucose, from sugar, but most of that can actually come from fat. So if you fuel your brain with mostly sugar, Sugar isn't as clean a fuel. It's, it's kind of a messy, fast fuel. It kind of burns hot and can cause a lot of collateral damage in the process. So the brain actually prefers, if you can give it this option, to fuel much of itself with fat. And because fat is a cleaner burning, smoother burning fuel and much more efficient. So if you do that, then you're protecting your brain from a lot of the internal damage of these big blood glucose and insulin spikes, the sugar spikes inside your brain. Every time your blood sugar spikes, your brain sugar is also spiking. And that creates enormous instability inside the brain, creates inflammation, oxidative stress. It destabilizes your GABA and glutamate uh, neurotransmitters, which are supposed to be carefully regulated. We can think of glutamate as the gas pedal and GABA as the brake. And so we don't want those to be unbalanced. If you're eating the wrong way, you're going to have glutamate out of control. Your brain is just, it's like hitting the gas pedal on your brain the time. And BDNF levels, the neurotrophic factor, this sort of growth promoter, which is uh, constantly helping your brain to grow and reshape itself and remodel itself, those levels go down. And this neuroplasticity that you mentioned is really critical. Neuroplasticity is how we reshape our brains. We can learn new things. You can't learn new things if you're not creating new pathways and new connections. And you can't create those new connections if you don't have enough growth factor. So if you return to a healthy way of fueling the brain, all of these things, you can see them improve very quickly. You have a lot of control over this. The brain actually will listen to what you're doing. Even if you're far along in life, even if you're in your 80s, you can still see improvement in your brain function and 
improvement in your brain structure by changing the way you eat. Oh, I love what you've just said. It's so important. Do you struggle to fall asleep? Maybe you find yourself getting more and more headaches. The problem could be coming from your technology. Many studies have shown that exposure to artificial blue light can disrupt sleeping patterns, increase headaches, and can even contribute to increased levels of stress and anxiety by raising cortisol. But don't worry, there is a solution. Blue Blocks Glasses. Blue Blocks is the only company that offers blue light filtering lenses backed by the latest science. They also have the largest selection of frames to choose from. And they are the only company that can take your own frames and turn them into Blue Blocks glasses. I love my Blue Blocks glasses and I wear them every day. They have been specially helpful as I work on my new book late at night on my computer. And just for my listeners, Blue Box is offering a 15% off discount with the code LEAF, L-E-A-F, at checkout. The link and details will be in the show notes. You've just given people so much hope by making them, helping them to realize that it doesn't matter where you are, even if you're in your 80s, by changing the way that you think and how you think about food and the way that you eat, you can actually change how your brain functions. I do clinical research, clinical trials, and we just finished a series now looking at non-pharmacological interventions for anxiety and depression and, and not limiting the definition of anxiety and depression down to the mental illness model currently, but looking at anxiety and depression as being something that all of us as humans experience and it's a very normal part of life but if we don't have a management as i saying earlier on a mind management plan in place which includes eating properly so that your brain which your mind works through can actually function properly then people are battling and i'm sure that you're aware of the deaths of despair and how people are dying so much younger now and if they get a mental health label you can knock off another 20 years and it's so related to what you've been saying today in terms of if we don't manage our minds to actually eat properly, we damage all because there's inflammation, there's insulin resistance, there's effects on neuroplasticity, and those will manifest as mental health issues. So people are thinking, oh gosh, I've got this illness, I've got anxiety, like it's the same sort of thing as a cancer. Meanwhile, most of the time, there's always a cause, maybe a trauma, maybe a combination of a trauma and mismanagement of acute stress or chronic stress, mismanagement of diet. And that link, I don't think has been managed enough. That's why I work so much in that area. And that's why I love what you do, because you're doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, we need more people doing this kind of thing. We really do. There are just so few people in this field looking at this through this lens. And that's why it's so wonderful to have the opportunity to speak directly to your listeners because there's so much they can do, even if they can't find a specialist who does this, even just eating a healthier whole foods diet can make a big, big difference. Totally. And it's just basically, as you said, there's so much that they can do. They don't have to wait to go and see a million doctors. They can actually start learning about food and mental health and almost immediately make those changes in their life. You can get an almost immediate effect. I wanted to ask you a question about what are your thoughts on, you know, these fake meat products like the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger? You know, those are highly processed foods that contain a lot of vegetable oil and, and other refined ingredients. They're not a whole food. They're about far from a whole food as you can imagine. Now, 
it's very controversial, this topic of, you know, do we eat animals or, or not eat animals? And I understand there's a lot of strong feelings about this topic, but there is unfortunately the biology is crystal clear. We really did evolve to require at least some amount of animal food in our diet in order to be optimally healthy. There just isn't any way around that, that fact. You know, we need to find a way to make that diet more sustainable. It doesn't have to be red meat. It could be shellfish, it can be seafood, it can be poultry, eggs, but there are nutrients that we cannot replace easily on a plant-based diet that are very, very difficult to obtain from supplements. Sort of the other side of that coin is, you know, there are lots of ways to improve the health of whatever diet you're eating by removing the processed foods. I guess I'd rather see you eating an impossible burger than eating, you know, a bag of gummy bears, but we have to kind of choose your battles, you know, and then also look at what is the impossible burger sitting on. Is it sitting on a, a white bun loaded with, with refined carbohydrate flour that's going to damage your carbohydrate metabolism and that has gluten in it that can cause problems for the gut lining in many cases. So you have to look at the big picture too. I think it's really, unfortunately, I am concerned about the growing interest in plant-based diets because I think there's a lot of misinformation about them. And there's really, I think most people don't realize there isn't any scientific evidence that simply removing animal foods from your diet gets you any healthier in any way. In fact, just the opposite. So all of those studies that claim that a plant-based diet is healthier, they're comparing a whole foods plant-based diet and exercise and stress reduction and low fat and low refined carbohydrates and low processed foods, they're comparing a really, really healthy whole foods plant-based diet to a junky modern diet that happens to include animal foods. So you have no idea why their diet looks a little bit healthier. It could simply be that they weren't eating junk. So we don't have any experiments. We don't have any clinical trials where all you do is you compare two whole foods diets where one contains animal foods and the other one doesn't. That experiment, to the best of my knowledge, has never been conducted. So when you eat a plant-based diet, you're doing a grand biological experiment. We really don't know the results of yet and could take many years to manifest itself. What you have just said is so important and it kind of goes to the current health and wellness trends that are a bit scary where, you know, you've just said something so significant about that there isn't actual any hardcore good clinical trials out there comparing saying that a plant-based diet is actually better and that they've been compared to a modern American type diet, a processed diet. I mean, that is incredibly important information. It is. I mean, what diet isn't healthier than a junky modern diet? <laughs> exactly. So it's going to give you a false trend. So, you know, you've just raised an incredibly important point there, and I'm glad you did raise that. On that topic, what other health and wellness trends scare you? <laughs> what you've just said now is really, I'm so glad you said that. And is there anything else that the listeners should be aware of? Thank you for that question, because the other health trend that bothers me is the sort of the rise of the superfoods and the super supplements, you know, this magical belief that all we have to do is add something special to our diet and we'll be healthier. People are making millions and millions of dollars off of this myth. Their gift isn't anything. Unless you don't eat animal foods and you put a little bit back in, that may be actually a superfood. Most of these plant food extracts and special superfoods, turmeric and blueberry extract and dark chocolate, these studies do not hold up under scrutiny because there really isn't anything magical you can add to your diet that's going to get rid of the problem that's being caused by eating the wrong foods. So unfortunately, we have this, what I sometimes think of as the psychology of subtraction, we don't want to subtract things from our diet. We just want to add things to it. 
it's just so much easier to take a pill or, or add, add a cup of kale or a quarter cup of blueberries or your turmeric or whatever it is. The problem is these interventions don't work. And what we need to do is take the junk out. And nobody wants to do that. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. It's just so valid because people are thinking a decontextualized blueberry is going to <laughs> change their whole life. But it's ridiculous. As you say, then they, they use that excuse to stay eating the junk food and just adding these things on. It kind of comes around to the whole thing of supplements. And that's what you've pretty much been talking about. It's a very dangerous trend. You know, I think if people are supplementing with organic food-based supplements and eating a whole food diet, and it's guided by someone like yourself, there is definitely an identified lack of vitamin B or something. But the way people are doing it is scary, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's definitely a role for supplements, as you point. There's definitely a role for supplements under the right circumstances. If you can't get your nutrients from a whole foods diet for whatever reason, because there are, for example, you mentioned vitamin D, you know, certain people in certain latitudes at certain times of the year, if you don't absorb vitamin B12 properly, which many of us don't, or if you're choosing a plant-based diet, you're really going to need supplements. And so there's a role for supplements, but there are very few people who consult with me who are not taking six, seven, eight, nine supplements. It's unreal, isn't it? There's just like whole, there's one organization that just happened to give a consult. It's like 65 tablets a day. I'm thinking, my goodness, who takes 65 <laughs> tablets a day? And if you're eating real food mindfully, you're going to be addressing most of that. And then if, as you say, if you identify that there is still some lack because of where you live or something or the quality is not quite what it should be then maybe there but it's got to be monitored and it's become this whole I can pop into the latest the local vitamin shop and just buy a whole bunch of stuff and carry on eating junk food you know it's a test it's a whole education but it is a whole education isn't it it's getting people to change their mindsets around the whole meal and this isn't to blame people for this. I mean, because they, they just have the wrong information that the information that we're given is designed to sell products. And yes, there are some products that are necessary. And so it can be hard to tell which ones people actually need and which ones they don't unless you have good advice. So I understand why people do this. I mean, people are really, most people are suffering and most people are reaching for solutions. And so... I completely understand that, but there does need to be a different way of thinking about these things so that people can really understand that we are designed to get our nutrients from whole foods. The animal foods are more nutritious than most plant foods. They contain the nutrients that we need in the proper form and the proper proportions. They're the most bioavailable, kind of ready to use, as opposed to many plant nutrients are, they would have to kind of jump through some chemical hoops to convert them into the form that we need to use them. And you can do that. I mean, you know, it's not that I think that people shouldn't eat plants. It's that it's important to understand that the most nutritious foods just happen to be animal foods. And that's just a sad reality that we have to wrestle with. Exactly. And, and as you say, that's where the science is. The other science is not very accurate. And that's something people need to be aware of. So I'm really glad you raised that. You've mentioned the ketogenic diet quite a lot, and I'm totally for that. I mean, I think it's absolutely fantastic, and getting the ketones in the brain is so important. But I know people do it wrong and they do it right. Can you speak just a little bit about the dangers of doing the ketogenic diet incorrectly? A little bit of advice there for people? Thank you for asking that, because for every dietary pattern, there are many, many wrong ways to do it and a few right ways to exactly. do it. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I just wanted to bring that up because I know that there's so many processed ketogenic products on the market that I wonder how actually healthy they are for you. You know, so it's, I'm interested to know what you feel about the sugar alcohols, you know, like monk fruit and stevia and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, sure. So 
no matter what diet you're eating, whether it's a ketogenic diet or an omnivore diet where you're eating plants and animals or plant-based or carnivore, whatever you're eating, just make sure that it's largely whole foods and not junk food. That's rule number one. The other rule to understand if you have insulin resistance and if you have insulin resistance, just be very, very careful with carbohydrate. So a ketogenic diet is just a very, very low carbohydrate diet that is often much higher in fat. It doesn't have to be a lot higher, but it basically you're swapping out your carbohydrate calories for fat calories. And the reason why that's good is because fat is very, very gentle on your insulin levels. It barely touches insulin at all. So you need almost no insulin to process fat. And it keeps your insulin levels nice and smooth rather than spiking and crashing whereas carbohydrate is the opposite. So what you want is a ketogenic diet that has a lot of healthy fats from healthy whole foods and enough protein to keep you alive and thriving and well so you can build your components, everybody, and very, very little carbohydrate. You really can't go too low with the carbohydrate, but most people it's you know under, under 50 grams a day or even maybe under 25 grams a day will get a lot of people into the ketogenic range. So all you have to do to be ketogenic is lower your carbohydrate extremely low. In most cases, you don't need to manipulate anything else, although there are exceptions. Some people need to you know, watch their protein intake, but most people, they lower the carbohydrate enough and they'll get into ketosis. But that doesn't mean that you're eating a healthy diet. So you have to look at the foods you're eating and make sure that you're getting nutritious foods in that diet. So, And the other thing is you do need to make sure you're eating some fat in that diet. You can't eat a low-fat ketogenic diet. That can be really dangerous in many cases because we need to eat fat to absorb nutrients. We need fat for calories. You really will put yourself into starvation mode if you're not eating enough calories. And so it shouldn't be in most cases a low calorie or low fat diet. We're so afraid of fat now that some people come to me, they're doing a ketogenic diet, but they're not eating enough fat and they're not eating enough calories and they're losing so much weight and they're becoming almost anorexic. So you must include fat, lower the carbohydrate, swap out the carbohydrate and swap fat in and eat whole foods and include, again, if you can, if you're willing to include a little bit of animal food, at least as your protein source. So all the ketogenic junk foods and supplements and keto shakes and keto bars and all of those things, leave those alone unless, unless you really have no other choice and just eat meat and vegetables and seafood and eggs and poultry and just eat the healthy whole foods as much as you possibly can. Oh, that's such a brilliant summary. You said something there about make sure that you get enough calories in if you're on the keto. Because I know people get so obsessed with getting the carbs down, and I think it's important. But even people, as you say, they're sacrificing the calories as well. So they low carb and low calorie. That is a dangerous place to get to. There's a lot of risk there. And so, you know, I think that common sense rules need to apply even on a ketogenic diet. So just because it's low in carbohydrate doesn't mean it has to be extreme in any other way. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Georgia, you have been incredible. I definitely want you to come back on the podcast again. You have so much wisdom and I know you've given the most incredible hope to people. It's a very hopeful message that you have, especially coming from someone who is a psychiatrist who works with people with mental health, who's changed your whole approach. I mean, I just love it. I, I get so excited talking to you and, and to, to see how enlightened you are about just the whole approach to mental health and using nutrition. Just absolutely wonderful. So I hope you'll come back again. Where can people find out more about you and your work? We're going to include all of this in the show notes as well, but can you tell 
Sure, sure. And thank you again very much for inviting me on. It's, it's just a, a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I love what you're doing. And it's great to be able to share this information with your listeners. So I'm easy to find. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, Georgia Ede, MD. My last name is E-D-E. I speak around the world on these topics. And I have a lot of YouTube videos available that people can watch that are free about these important concepts. And if people are interested in consulting with me, they go to my website, which is diagnosisdiet.com. And I have a consultations tab and it explains how that all works if you are curious about that. So lots of ways to get in touch. But again, I think that there's so much that people can do even on their own. I should say one last thing, which I always want to make clear to say, if you're taking a psychiatric medication or you have a serious mental illness, you should not start a ketogenic diet without learning more about it and getting special help. And I have lots of information about that on my website too, that will guide you or your physician in how to approach a ketogenic diet if you're taking medication or if you have a serious mental health problem. That's fantastic information. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, thank you so much and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye, Georgia. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.